0: You're listening to Shine On, a podcast presented by Solar Power Europe, the European Association for Solar Power. Join us as we shine a light on the latest developments in the solar sector. Hello, and welcome to Shine On, a podcast presented by Solar Power Europe. I'm your host, Lucas Clark Memler, and in the second season of our Solar Success in Africa series, we'll hear more about innovative solar projects. Bringing clean and reliable energy to communities across sub Saharan Africa. This podcast series is supported by Get Invest, a European program that mobilizes investment in decentralized renewable energy projects, supported by the European Union, Germany, Sweden, the Netherlands, and Austria. In this episode, I have the pleasure of talking with Joseph Abramovitz, CEO of Gigawatt Global. So, hi, Joseph. Thanks for joining us today. Can I first ask where you're calling in from?
1: Hi, Lucas, and hi, everybody. I'm calling in from Jerusalem, an interesting historic bridge between Europe and Africa.
0: Absolutely. And is the sun shining in Jerusalem today?
1: Oh, it sure is. It sure is. And yesterday I was down in our southern deserts, and, boy, that makes me happy. <laughs> we have a lot of <laughs> solar fields there, and just, this is, you know, I used to say this is the future, this is the present. We we, ha- we got that region in the south, from the Red Sea to the Dead Sea, to be 100% daytime solar, the first region in the
0: world. Wow, yeah, that's a really impressive achievement that I think we should aim to replicate around the world. So why don't we get started and jump into this, Joseph? Let's have you introduce yourself a little bit to our listeners, and you can discuss the background and the mission of Gigawatt Global. Great. Basically,
1: I'm a troublemaker and by accident <laughs> fell into the solar business by moving to those southern deserts and being hit with this vision of maybe 100% is possible. And that's back 15 years ago when everyone said there's, there's no precedent for, for going to 100%. And both on a technical level, on a financial model, it's impossible. And I was very fortunate to put together the team and to, to fight the uphill political and regulatory battles to be able to enable that. And so when I was building my first solar field, this is exactly a decade ago, we interconnected a modest 4.9 megawatt solar field, in kibbutz, and agricultural community. People started coming from... All over the world, 58 countries, most of them developing countries, came and said, hey, can you help us out? So we realized there was demand well beyond our region. And since most of them came from Africa, we had understood that now that we knew how to develop and finance solar fields, perhaps there's something that we can contribute to the development of Africa. And so we created a sister company called Gigawatt Global, and we set out idealistically into sub-Sahara Africa and with a quadruple bottom line goal, meaning it has to be you know good enough for investors, an environmental bottom line, kill diesel, a development bottom line, help economies grow and create jobs, and uh, certainly uh, climate and humanitarian bottom lines. Maybe that was five, but we really went in thinking because it's so needed and we know how to finance and develop that this would scale very quickly. And that is our goal to scale in the neediest places for the most vulnerable of communities. And we're well on our way, but the
0: pacing is, is, has been difficult. Mm-hmm. And can you give us a sense of where in sub-Saharan Africa, Gigawatt Global has a presence?
1: So just like we did the first solar field in the Middle East, and everyone told us we we're naive and it's impossible, when we looked at sub-Saharan Africa, no one had succeeded in sub-Saharan Africa outside of South Africa, which is a basically a different universe, and told us it was going to be impossible. We, we looked at all 54 countries. We did an analysis based on 25 different factors, anything from diesel usage to international relations, to credit rating, to corruption index, democracy index, like we looked at all of those things and we decided to focus on Rwanda to be our proof of concept. And so we were the first to do that and we're supplying 6% of Rwanda's power when we interconnected in 2014. It was the... First success of the Obama-Biden administration, which helped us out under the U.S. Power Africa program. And Europe played a very important role. We had a, a EEP grant. We had financing from Norfund, the Norwegians, and FMO, the Dutch Development Bank. We learned in different grants as well. And we learned through that first field that it does take a global village to uh, raise a solar market in sub-Saharan Africa. After our success in Rwanda, we planted seeds all over the continent and we're at different stages of development in, you Burundi, Kenya, Ethiopia, South Sudan, Zambia, Mozambique, Nigeria, Liberia, Guinea, Conakry, and there's about another dozen countries that are Knocking on our door. We're trying to figure this out. So the needs are great. And we know how to do this. and We know how to do it with a strong community development focus. We know how to do it in a way that is fully compliant with the letter and spirit of the UK Anti-Bribery Act and the U.S. Foreign Corruption Practices Act, which is why it takes longer than it should. And, again, we try to really focus either on countries where nobody else will go, or we'll go to other countries where there are other developers, you know, Ethiopia, Kenya, for example. But we'll go and do it in ways that are completely different and that others would not undertake those kinds of projects with significant, significant impact.
0: So the global in your name is no joke.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, it may be a certain hubris as we've, you know, encountered difficulties. We we did a field in the U.S. in the South in Georgia, which was fun, but it accomplished some of our quadruple bottom line. But we decided, you know what, we're not really needed in the U.S. And it was it really was fun to be the first in Georgia to do a utility scale solar at the avoidance cost. That was the first one in the whole Southeast U.S. But we didn't make that much money, and they don't really need us. And for us, you know, we we have to bring a profit to our investors who are impact investors. But we're in it to really, you know, battle for a race against time on climate, for social and economic development, particularly for women, you know, try to lessen the fragility of places like, Juba, South Sudan, and we we find a lot of meaning, as do our impact investors, in going into those. They're not even markets in many of these cases, right? Going into those fragile states and trying to bring this it really, to me, is still miraculous. Miraculous clean energy to the people who need it most.
0: Absolutely so on that topic of where people need it most obviously sub-saharan africa is 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 a, is a large region where where people certainly do need access to energy we know that there is the potential but it does scare off some people just the thought of 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 solar in sub-saharan africa so we can start big picture and then we'll, we'll, we'll focus on as we go through. But I mean, from your perspective, when you when you were looking at these markets, you, you mentioned some of these, these factors you were looking at. But when it came just to a more sort of technical aspect of just the potential for solar irradiation levels, things like that, when you were looking at sub-Saharan Africa, was, was there a reason any of these countries in particular or, or just the whole region seemed particularly attractive, whether it was just this, the amount of sun that was there or, or, or the lack of competition?
1: Well, before COVID, 11 out of the 20 fastest-growing economies in the world were on the continent. I mean, sometimes you also want to chase GDP growth, right? Mm -hmm. And what we were able to do in Rwanda, and it was important that we did it right before Paris, is it was the first time they were able to decouple GDP growth from emissions growth. In other words, they were able to maintain an 8% GDP growth rate without adding emissions. And to be able to deliver that kind of promise on climate and economic growth is also important. But there are 600 million people on the continent without access to power. There's 300 million, give or take, who are burning expensive and polluting diesel, meaning some of the poorest people on the planet who are paying something are paying the most. And so, you know, where's the justice in that? And it's actually appalling. And the population of the continent is going to double in a generation. So from a market perspective, you can say we have an unlimited, nearly infinite potential market if you know how to unlock the value. So from an investor perspective, as long as they're patient capital, and that's one of the lessons that we learned on our roller coaster of a journey. So it needs to be patient capital. But from a business proposition, it's actually quite extraordinary. But every interconnection also lifts human dignity. And, you know, if we're not in the business of lifting human dignity through energy access, then I don't think I personally or my team or my investors would be willing to go into fragile states. But it's precisely because we see an opportunity for advancement of human rights, and empowerment of women that we're willing to, to assume greater risk, put a lot more resources into risk mitigation, which is why the support of Get Invest and REPP and other uh, instruments and tools and partners has been critical, and take it all the way and prove to the world prove to the continent that solar power is not just for the wealthy countries of you know Europe or the US, but it should actually be the leapfrog energy of choice. And we need to accelerate in a way that humanity has never accelerated energy access before.
0: That's certainly the goal of Solar Power Europe, as well as many of our partners and and people who've come on this podcast. So it's great to hear that you share that vision. I knew I loved you guys. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. Well, I'd like to get a little bit more granular, Joseph, and let's talk about a solar project of yours in Burundi. The 7.5 megawatt project. And you just (laughs) mentioned previously about it taking a global village to bring uh, utility scale energy or to bring solar where it's needed most. So with that in mind, could you talk us through the development of this project, challenges you faced and overcame? And, you know, we can, we can end it, you know, talking about the impact, the the concrete impact that the project will have on the, on the people of, of the region.
1: Yeah, Burundi is next door to Rwanda, so there's some Burundian officials who were there for the launch of our solar field. And they were like, wow, if Rwanda has one, why why can't we have one? But look, there's a very big difference to the dismay of the Burundians between the way the international community views Rwanda post-genocide, right, and the way the international community continues to view Burundi post-Civil War and lots of other things. Even just the rate of electrification. Ninety-two percent of the people in Burundi don't have access to power, which is extraordinary. It also means that you have an extraordinary opportunity for impact. There were no energy investments in 30 years, right? And there's no history of independent power production. In Burundi. So there's no regulatory environment that would give investors confidence. There's been a lot of political upheaval over the years. We were developing exactly when a coup was happening and had to get our people out on the last flight beforehand. I I do want to salute a remarkable. Team led by Michael Fichtenberg and Patrick and others, when just as NGOs weren't feeling safe and relieving Burundi, Le let alone investors, we doubled down. We doubled down and we said, look, the people suffer the most in instability. And our goal is to help the people, to bring literally power to the people. And let's say we have a, a gutsy team, a professional team. And Patrick is a Burundian national who's also married to an Israeli woman. So he, he lives in both worlds. And, you know, we would never understand the political culture of a place like Burundi unless you have good local representatives who used to say can protect your good name because that's all we have, Right. And then in some places, our good name and our lives. So the challenges were significant. Um, a utility that is not creditworthy, just like in many other countries that we work in, Liberia, et cetera. So I have to say, we were very proud of our accomplishment in Rwanda. And we're like, wow. And, and that was on one end of the risk spectrum. But there are no other Rwandas in sub-Saharan Africa. And Burundi is pretty much on the other end. I'm not giving political commentary. I'm just saying from the view of the international community. And part of our goal of doing our next field in Burundi was to say, if you can do it in Burundi, then there isn't a place on the continent that shouldn't have solar energy as its primary energy. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't, tell us, oh, it's because of, you know, poverty, bankruptcy of utility, political instability. Like, the world can't use those excuses to kind of bow out of fulfilling the obligations they made in Paris to the developing world. And for the most part, there's a lot of goodwill, there's a lot of talk, and the money is not flowing the way it should where it's needed most. And so our wanting to do Burundi was to say that the rest of our pipeline, you know, in 10 different countries is real. Because there's no other place that had the combination of all of those risks and the level of poverty. So we as a company now are out doing a Series A because we're, we're ready to replicate and scale, you know. Like, we can do this. We can deliver you know, decent returns for investors, but all the humanitarian and climate impact that people dream of and claim that they want to do. But it also means that we want to tell our European finance partners that y- you have no more excuses not to scale what we and others can do in these places. You name me a risk, and I'll tell you how to de-risk it. You know? I so said there's no excuses. So we're proud that Burundi, been operating for 4 months. It took us 6 years. You can't really make money when it takes 6 years unless you have the kind of consortium, let's call it, of impact investors, blended finance, concessionary finance, grants. We're really pleased to say thank you to anything from the Belgian, you know, development arm to the Get Invest to the Countries supporting the EEP grants to the Renewable Energy Performance Platform of the UK, to the development finance of the U.S. government, DFC, formerly OPIC, to all sorts of other players, large and small, who helped us along the way, to the risk insurance, ATI, and others. I mean, it is so complicated. It's a jigsaw puzzle. Imagine putting together a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle, but the picture keeps moving, (laughs) you know? And that's what it's like in these places. But you know what? It's done. We're supplying 10% of Burundi's power, third poorest country on the planet. It's time. It's time for the whole world to mobilize and to do this. And it's time for African leaders to make it easier for frontier impact developers like ourselves and impact investors like ourselves to just get the job done. And it's good for them. It'll bring economic growth, empowerment. There's a nexus between energy access and health, obviously. There's no vaccines. if There's no refrigeration. Clean water, right? You can't pump or clean water without energy. The dignity of a job. Like all these, you know, dignity of a job and access to health and education, these are all... Covered by the International Declaration of Human Rights, right? We're all signatories to it. The whole world is. So, from my perspective, access to affordable green energy in the 21st century should be a fundamental human right. And we have a business model to scale that.
0: And if you can do it in Burundi, you can do it anywhere.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So as I said, we're in at least 10 other markets, different stages of development, and we're looking for international partners to help us de-risk, people who want to do good and they can do well.
0: We just need them to be a little bit more patient than doing the solar field in Germany. Mm. Sure. And, and you mentioned this in regards to Burundi, and I'd like to move on to address this in, in with a little bit more detail regarding financing. Because, as you mentioned, this is a slightly different model in Africa than it would be in Europe. So maybe you can talk a little bit more general. It doesn't have to be only about Burundi, but about any of your projects in sub-Saharan Africa regarding some of the financing challenges. And feel free to call out uh, any particular instruments and institutions you're able to depend on for support. Also, this is helpful for others who are listening who have similar projects in Africa and might be looking for that same kind of support. So,
1: Indeed. So... You know, this is going to be counterintuitive. There's an overabundance of capital, debt and equity that are eager to go into bankable projects with 20 to 25 year power purchase agreements. There is almost an infinite amount of money that is willing to do that. The key, however, and this is where the international community has fallen down largely, is that if it takes two to, I'm in Nigeria eight years, I'm out of finish line, two to eight years, right, to develop a project ethically, professionally, with community involvement and with high impact, who's footing that bill? You've got to give us the opportunity to stay in the game, the long-term game, to get these projects up. And so that's why I just mentioned the Series A, and we're happily talking to a bunch of development institutions and others about helping us scale. But, you know, everyone saw what we did in Rwanda, and they they didn't jump on the bandwagon. They were like, oh, there's no more Rwandas. Let's see you do Burundi. All right? <laughs> we did Burundi. Hmm. So at this point, support the platforms with proven track records. Support the platforms that know how to bring in all the, you know, environmental and social impact studies and, you know, soup up exactly the quadruple bottom line all across the board. And stop being so timid. You know, lo- look at the developers, not just us, but look at the developers who are bringing this energy and scale. And you know what? Some projects may fail, and everybody will learn from them, including the investors. But we can't grow at this pace and do right by the people in Africa. We can't grow at this pace, we and others like us, and kill diesel fast enough if 9% of the world's energy is being burnt on diesel, right? Well, we have a business model to phase that out quickly and save people money in these poor countries, so that would do a lot for the climate battle. So we and others are ready to go, and the international community has to show some guts.
0: Absolutely. So, Joseph, you you mentioned a few different supporters previously. This this particular series is supported by the European program Get Invest. And I'm curious for, again, to, 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 to give information to others out there listening, if you could maybe discuss how GetInvest and other platforms like it supported you and how their support helped you fulfill these different mission statements in the region.
1: Yeah. Pe- people look at us as you know, frontier developers. Well, we really are in the risk mitigation business, right? And there are many risks. And what investors are looking for is they, they want to make sure that every assumption is checked by third parties it's one thing to listen to a developer even one is experienced as Gigawatt global and so what the get invest were able to do with us is the financial modeling and the advisory and audit and what happens is, is you're sort of getting what we call in america a good housekeeping seal of approval right? it's another level of saying to investors who's maybe on the edge who in the past said oh my god africa to say oh Maybe Africa, right? Mm. Maybe Burundi. So we're very grateful. The Renewable Energy Performance Platform, Construction Loan. You know, The equities from Inspired Evolution, which is supported by many multilaterals, particularly the Dutch Development Bank, FMO, which knows as well from the Rwanda Project, for example. So we were able to get like, in-kind services to help give greater credibility for our donors and for our investors, because blended finance is the way to scale. So we we thank them. One of the tools that I failed to mention before, which we haven't actually directly used yet, but we're going to use throughout the continent, the World Bank through MIGA has a wonderful political risk insurance package for fragile states. To their credit, like World Bank is supposed to help the neediest people on the planet, and so you know when we see you know a coup or revolution, just you know, bankruptcy of a country, you know, or something close to it, and everybody leaving, we're, we're like the only people flying in. Because we always check with, if the DFC uh, political risk insurance or with uh, our friends at MIGA and say, look, if somehow we did manage to bring bankable deals and high impact, would you give us the insurance wrap? And usually the answer to their credit is yes. So... As everyone's leaving these countries, we're kinda parachuting in. And it doesn't always work, but we're we're willing to undertake
0: that. Mm-hmm. And I think that there will be listeners who will be thinking this is a very helpful <laughs> a very helpful set of, of resources that they might not have been aware of because as we both know, the important thing is that we want more and we want it faster. And, you know, it's, it's important to, to share these resources. And I, I know that we've found sometimes there is a gap in the sharing of, of resources like this. So I think it's, it's really helpful to see how much you've succeeded and for others to think that they, they could do it too. So they can. And I'll tell you where some of the gaps are also. Sometimes you'll have a local
1: developer, right? They'll understand the local scene. They'll get a license. They'll get something. But they can't do the technology... The risk mitigation for a bankable deal. So I'm believing more and more into collaborations. It could be joint ventures. It could be, it could be all sorts. Like we're not dogmatic about the structure. There could be other European, you know, based developers working sub South Africa that are stuck. And if, if they want to compare notes or work together in a market, we're open to all of that. I, I think instead of kind of this, you know, cutthroat, which I've seen in many Western worlds, it's like a race now for market share, right? I think the more collaborative we are on the continent, the more likely we can succeed. And again, some developers may not be able to bring the confidence of certain investors or World Bank political risk insurance. We can bring those things. But maybe we wouldn't have been able to bring a license and, you know, fill in the blank of the country, but someone else was able to do that. So I really want to encourage collaboration as as we all scale up.
0: So you've mentioned a number of other solar projects in the pipeline, Joseph. Are there any in particular you'd like to talk a little bit more about or or indicate to our listeners some of the ones you're you're more excited about?
1: Yeah, I'm really excited about South Sudan. We're 7 years in, nine ceasefires, a lot of uncertainty. However, I want to do a call out to the African Development Bank on the restoration of the grid. They actually have the newest grid in Africa. Because they had to restore it. We're pleased we have a PPA, license zero zero one implementation agreement, government guarantee. We just need a about a half a million dollars now in grant money for final studies. We believe that DFC and others will do the financing and it will supply in some cases, the majority of Juba's energy will be solar, and it's the first one we're doing with battery storage. So uh, we're open for business there, in case there are partners who uh, really want to flagship ideally with storage. We were very excited about the ten universities in Ethiopia, but COVID and the war there—it's very sad that those ten universities, each of them was going to be ten megawatts, and they were going to be living labs to train tens and hundreds of thousands of green engineers. We're really excited about Zambia. We have the first co-located wind-solar hybrid, 71 megawatts. We just signed the implementation agreement. During COVID, it's it's beautiful. We've had a World Bank wind mass there. So as the, you know, the sun goes up, so it's supplying energy. As the sun sets, it's a perfect curve. The wind goes up and you almost don't need any storage maybe just a little bit to kind of mitigate but it's maybe the most perfect spot in africa for co-located wind and solar hybrid we're in northern mozambique early stage but it's church and tribal land where it's matriarchal land ownership and for us the empowerment of women is it's so important for economic and social development. It's one of the few places on the continent where we're able to find the kind of impact to support the women landowners. So that's, that's really cool. In Nigeria, we're in northern Nigeria, Bauchi state. Let's just say there aren't a lot of investors willing to go to northern Nigeria <laughs> for many reasons. And so it's the last area of Nigeria where there are Christians and Muslims living together in peace. We definitely want to reinforce that and the economic development. In Liberia, they have a wonderful hydro plant, but during the dry season, the country is out of power, basically, and we're at an advanced stage there, which is very, very, very exciting. There's there's a bunch more in the works, and I, I feel bad if there's countries I didn't name and I'm excited. Kenya, we're doing last mile generation, which is a concept I think we're pioneering. There are some grids, but without power, so those communities are poor. Kenya is giving very mixed signals, to say the least, to the solar industry. The president is re-reviewing all PPAs, which is awful. And with the support of the UK government, Infraco, we're about to present, I think, the first local currency PPA on the continent. We think we know how to de-risk that. And that could be a game changer in many of these countries that don't really have much foreign currency. And one of the reasons why they drag their feet on these projects. So we have a innovative small feisty crew. And you know, with Burundi Interconnection, we'd like to challenge the international community to challenge us back to say how fast can you deploy? How fast can you scale? How much impact can you have? How many millions of lives can you transform and do together? So that's our challenge to the international community going into COP26.
0: Absolutely. And I'm just so impressed with the breadth and ambition of these projects. I mean, it's 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 hard not to feel very inspired when you're, <laughs> when you're rattling off that list of all of these upcoming projects. We have a great team. I really just thank my lucky stars every day.
1: And we'd like to grow that team and to create these markets so that we can win the
0: climate and development battles. Mm. Well, Joseph, this has been as i said inspiring informative and interesting which is which is what we try to do with this podcast so i I really appreciate your time do you have any final message you'd like to send to our listeners before we before we close off shine on baby shine on (laughs) shine on solar indeed so thanks joseph and i just look forward to following your your progress all these projects and and maybe checking in again on a future episode you got it thank you so much